But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Luke Pearson, who is a Gamilaroi man and the founder and CEO of Indigenous X. Thanks for joining us. No worries. Thanks for having me. I guess just to begin with, Luke, uh, let's start with week one of the campaign around The Voice. Where did it go wrong? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> I was like, God! <laughs> no, um, we, ask, we ask white people what they think. <laughs> now, really, to begin with, could you tell us about Indigenous X? When did you start it and why did you start it? Uh, Indigenous X, God, 2012 because we're all very old for anyone who was around when we started. And back then, Twitter was quite new. It was a very different media landscape than what we have currently. Not that the one we have now is necessarily all that great, but back then, Indigenous commentary was pretty non-existent. I I quite often jokingly, but not that jokingly, say, like, if you read an opinion piece in 2012, it was from Noel Pearson in The Australian. Yeah, like, that was really, there just wasn't much around. And then as, as social media sort of blew up, I was one of the very small number of black followers back in the day who were, who were on Twitter. Really loved the space back then. Very, very different landscape now that it's, it's become X. But basically, I created Indigenous X on that sort of the media thought that no one wanted to hear from us, didn't really care about what we had to say. And we proved that that wasn't true. And so a big part of the reason why now like, every media outlet looks for Indigenous commentary or Indigenous journalists is because of those of us who are those sort of early adopters to the blogging space, the media space, writing opinion, using social media. And Indigenous X was this idea that I had within that space to turn my account into a rotating account. So it's just basically different black fire each week, do whatever you want, say whatever you want to say. Um, and, and people understood the importance of that at the time, got behind it. And we went for a bit over 10 years before Twitter just became a, a cesspit and I had to stop the rotating account, but we still continue. We do anti-racism training, a uh, bit of consultancy work, and we still publish uh, articles, but we don't, we don't do the rotating Twitter stuff anymore. What kind of voices did Indigenous X provide that weren't available in the mainstream, Luke? Like I said, all of them. In the early days, like that's that's just how bereft the space was. And so when we started, it was a very different philosophy than what I would apply if I was trying to create something like Indigenous X in the current landscape. And so in those early days, man, like Warren Mundine hosted Indigenous X. You know, Marcia Lankin hosted Indigenous X. Like the idea was that there was no diversity of voices and we were there to showcase the diversity of voices. And so our, our policy really was for years, it was just an open door policy. Like if you were a black fellow and you wanted to host, you got to host. We didn't, like there was no, oh, like I don't like what you say. Um, that wasn't what we were trying to achieve. Where like I think now, because there is has been a rise of conservative voices and it is such a different space, I would probably not apply the same standards doing something in this day and age. But at the time, that, that was the point. And like I said, there was literally nothing within the space when it came to commentary. 
And any any Indigenous opinion you saw was through the lens of a non-Indigenous journalist interviewing somebody. So they got to tell the narrative and they got to select what soundbite of yours made it through. So the whole point of Indigenous X was, like, you fellas, like non-Indigenous Australia, like so little about us. You think we're a homogenous group. You And still, you can see it now. People so confused that there are black fellas with different opinions on really complex, nuanced topics. So it was just like, well, just hear it all, listen to it. And then for each individual host, it was like, you don't have to represent the collective. You don't have to speak only about black fella stuff. Like it's your week and it's the job of the audience to shift their thinking around you, not to shift your voice around what the audience want to hear. And so, like, at the time, that that was what I felt was the best thing that I, I could do. But also, like, if I did select, then it was like, who am I to be the selector? You know what I mean? Like, of, of which voices are palatable or acceptable. So I didn't I didn't want to be that fella either. So Warren Mundine perhaps done his dash if it, uh, it was to return, though. Oh, I, I wouldn't be knocking on the door. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but that was it was such an interesting thing and an interesting time and because indigenous X it did it took on an ethics that weren't always necessarily my own like it had this higher philosophy and why like I don't mind saying no I don't listen to that fella <laughs> he's full of shit and they're talking about like random people that's not what indigenous X was it it was this thing that that had a, a broader appeal and a broader mission and then like I said we got to a point where it just the space just was far too toxic for it to, to continue. And so we, we shut that down. And now, like, we don't have an open door policy for people writing articles for us. You know what I mean? Like, so, well, we do try to still showcase a broad perspective from community. Like, there, there are key individuals out there who, if they pitched an article, odds are I would say no. But a big part of that is why, like, we do have basic standards. And so if you're out there, if you pitch us an article that's just straight up full of things that not only are wrong, but clearly you don't believe because no logical sane person would, then I'm, I don't feel obliged to publish that. What perspectives do you think are missing in the, I guess, national discourse about Indigenous politics? Uh, the national discourse and is still pretty poor and the mob who do step up. But you see some really, really grounded voices, like journalists have, have really sort of stepped up because I think it's that like we were the rise of the social commentator which was more broadly seen as killing investigative journalism which I think in non-indigenous spaces there was certainly a truth to that but we like we didn't really have much of either within like mainstream awareness of, of indigenous voices at the time so obviously I got NITV, Curry Mail and a long history of indigenous radio like we do have actually really strong indigenous media sector but it, it very rarely made it through to those mainstream spaces. So there's a lot of really staunch voices out there now, but I, I do think like Australia's literacy around issues of race and racism are so low that whenever any any black fellow who works for the ABC or your SBS, like the amount of complaints they must be getting to their ombudsmans and whatever, like every time they open their mouth. And like I'm ex-ABC, I'm ex-NITV. And I can remember there was that sort of way of thinking where it was like if I'm if I'm writing a story, I'm allowed to just say water is wet. I don't need to go and find a water expert to, to confirm for me. Yeah, hey, expert, experts agree that water is wet. I can just say it because that's common knowledge. It's commonly understood. But if you want to say, like, blackfellas regularly experience racism in this country, you can't say that. You have to get an expert to say that for you. And so, like, I can remember doing that and trying to say those things. We're like, cool, I'll ring up an expert and get them to confirm <laughs> that water is wet for me, sure. Um, a few years ago, like, it seemed that there was something of a – 
a groundswell in non-Indigenous support for protest around matters such as January 26 and so on, and maybe potentially a growing audience for some serious discussions about things like land rights and treaty. Do you think that sentiment has disappeared or what's become of it? No, I I think that sentiment, it it ebbs and flows. I don't think it's disappeared. I I think it manoeuvres. I I think a lot of whitefellas particularly sort of rock up real excited but very quickly either leave or try to redirect. And so they have a vision of what their aspirations are for Indigenous people and for Australia. And if ours aren't consistent with those, they either get very, very cranky with us or they just start to speak over us. And, I mean, you talk about support for Invasion Day. It's such a great example. Like Blackfellow has been opposing Australia Day and, and not just the date, but this idea of the celebration of that history and then also using that as a vehicle to talk about why what happened isn't to be celebrated and why what's still happening isn't worth celebrating. And, and what did, when, when white followers all got behind it, what happened to it? It became, let's, call, let's, let's go to May 8, let's go to this date, let's go to that date. And it's like, followers, we're not talking actually literally just about changing the date and we've fixed it. Like we're talking about that as the vehicle for a much bigger conversation. And, yeah, we should change the date because it's a shit date to be celebrating a national date on. But moving the date isn't actually going to fix everything. And so that's where, like, Indigenous X, like, we, we really were one of those groups on Twitter at the time who were really spearheading change the date. And then all these white fellas got involved in it and they bought the bloody changethedate.com and they bought out this and they, like, they, they just hijacked it. And then the next year we're running Change the Nation as our hashtag to try to kill change the date because it's like you've ruined it. Like, <laughs> you've ruined it. We, we were trying to have a much bigger conversation here and then suddenly there's all these skits, like, skits and articles about what date we should have instead. And it's like you just missed the point. We're not, we're not coming to the party to still celebrate the same colonial history but on a different date. And so that's – I said it very early in this campaign. It's like when white fellas get excited about black fellas stuff, I get nervous. <laughs> but I just do. And, yeah, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. But, yeah, there was that moment, and there has been some significant change. I think that that moment when the support for protests around Stop Black Deaths in Custody and Black Lives Matter sort of culminated, there was a moment, and there has been a shift. But like I said, like there's the corporates and, and politicians and just general white Australia who get behind that stuff for five minutes like, are just really, really good at, at taking all the language and redirecting it. Do you think there's some way that recuperation can be avoided or how do you think it can best be approached? Uh, yeah, at, at, like for the individuals listening who realise they might be part of that hijacking of, of issues, it's like, yeah, go, go and Google cultural humility as a concept. It's a, a framework fits under cultural safety models. It's like need to know when when to speak up in support but not to bloody speak over. Need to know like... Yeah, they get that excitement of like a born-again Christian. It's that fellow who you know, quit smoking and five minutes later is yelling at everyone having a smoke. It's like, settle down. You knew you're excited. It's okay, but like take some bloody time, get some perspective, learn what's going on around you, like catch up, like take, take a minute. Use, use that energy. That energy is great. Love that energy, but put it in the right places. Like, and no, you don't just get to, to ride over the top. Like if you're really in support of, of people, 
then you listen to what they want. You don't just impose your own aspirations for your vision on top of it. Uh, Luke, do you think that support for the black sovereignty movement will now grow as a result of what's happened with the referendum? Uh, I think there's going to be some reframing of what that actually is. Because like, like I would have said, the overwhelming majority of black fellows believe like that we never ceded our sovereignty. I would have said there was growing sort of public awareness and, and acceptance of that as a core reality, like that it's just a true statement. But now that you have like an identifiable group of individuals that you can say this is that movement, then you're going to have people saying, well, I don't like those individuals as distinct from, well, yeah, I do or don't or whatever, as, as distinct from do you agree with this principle? And so I, I think there's going to be a lot of manoeuvring around that. What What is the movement? Who is the movement? What does the movement stand for? Like there's going to, because it, it wasn't, it, it didn't really exist in that way before this. So yeah, I think that's going to be a whole thing. Do you think, Luke, there's any distinction between black sovereignty and speaking historically, black power in this part of the world? Again, man, conceptually, they're certainly all all intertwined. Like that, that's where that power comes from. That connection. That's that's really the heart of always was, always will be. So it's like whatever whatever language you're using around that. Yeah, like I, I believe that all stems from that same place. One thing that also occurred to me is in your own writing and, and speaking, you try and draw attention to the, I guess, objections to or disadvantages of talking about whether it's the S campaign or, or something else. Always framing things in terms of Indigenous disadvantage as opposed to sovereignty or treaty. And can you explain why you think that's mistaken to, to concentrate so much on disadvantage and closing the gap and all that sort of thing? No, there's a, a difference there. I think it is perfectly appropriate to talk about disadvantage because that's, that's the reality that a lot of people experience. What I think is a huge problem with the way we talk about disadvantage is we very rarely draw out any of the causal factors. So again, and this is where I often talk about, like we have a shared language that masks the fact that we have no shared understanding. And so both, both sides of, the, of politics want to close the gap. We all want to close the gap. But when you say, like, why does the gap exist in the first place, which is why you think it exists is very intimately tied to how you think will best close it. And so you've got a lot of people, and this isn't just a bloody liberal labor split. I, I hate that as a, a false bloody binary between racist, anti-racist. But a lot of people think the, the gap exists because we're a primitive people who are violent and backwards and white fellas are here saving us and, and dragging us into the future. Very white man's burden, traditional sort of colonization justification, like just overt white supremacist bullshit. And then you've got other people who understand that Indigenous disadvantage is very intimately tied to a history of oppression, denial of our own sovereignty. So it's not just invasion, genocide, forced assimilation, and then not, not being able to achieve equitable outcomes within this new system that we shouldn't have been forced into in the first freaking place. So like the, the conversation is just so flawed when you just talk at that level. But we should be talking about disadvantage. We should just be naming where we think the disadvantage comes from, what we think are the main contributors to it. And then suddenly you'll see this bipartisan support for Close the Gap will fall away, as it should, because it isn't real. And then we can actually start talking about solutions through a lens of you know, what we believe the actual problem is. And historically, it's been a lot of people just think like, we are the problem. Yeah, that, that, that language, the Aboriginal problem is very old. When, when that Lang Hancock video popped up recently, you hear 
the what he was saying, like just bloody sterilize us and, and pushing forward genocide, like that was the policy agenda for most of his life. That was the solution to the Aboriginal problem. He just watched it not get achieved over his lifetime, and he was a very old man. He's like, I've got a way of doing it really quick because we tried doing it over a hundred years and that didn't work. So yeah, we look at Lang and go, oh, what a crazy old racist he was. It's like, yes, obviously, but he was just encapsulating the broader Australian policy agenda as it relates to us for a very long time. And so whether you think we're the problem or the problem is how we have been treated, that's, that's the lens. That's what's missing in the conversation about disadvantage. But also when you're talking about Indigenous rights, like we don't have a right to treaty. We don't have a right to you know, Article 19 of the UNDRA, which is, is the one that says that states should be consulting in, in good faith with Indigenous peoples, which is where you can sort of say the voice is intimately tied to conceptually. Like those rights that we have as Indigenous people don't exist by virtue of disadvantage. They exist by virtue of us being Indigenous peoples. Well, speaking of treaty, this was one of the promises of the No campaign, that if, if No got up, then we could finally get some treaty happening. Do you have high hopes for that? <laughs> I, I don't have high hopes in anything uh, that the sort of – but who, who was saying that? I think – well, Advance Australia <laughs> ran um, – like so the, the, even the framing of like the yes campaign and the no campaign, it's like there were official campaigns, but there were so many, so much commentary throughout. I think it's hard to identify a single yes or no. But really, Advance Australia, so the, the conservative no, was saying that this will, this will be a, a well, road to treaty. They, they, were, uh, they were running ads. So they ran ads for their conservative base saying this is going, if we the voice gets up, it'll go too far and there'll be a treaty. But they also ran ads targeting progressive voters saying the voice is going to stop us from getting to treaty. I think Warren Mundine... Uh, okay, because that's where I was like, I'm, I'm pretty sure treaty. they're not on board for treaty. So. No. <laughs> no, man, I, I don't have faith in anything that they say because I don't think they care about what they say. I don't think they believe what they say. And that's, yeah, when I, when I talk about my respect for the diversity of Indigenous views, it's I have respect for the diversity of indige- Indigenous views that are sincere. <laughs> like so when when you're willing to just say a thing without caring if it's true then i don't respect you and that that to me is very much that conservative space like i i feel they just say a thing in, in the old school traditional sense of of politicians i don't think they necessarily believe the things that they say so i don't give much thought to them or entertain them uh, Luke, what do you make of the various state-based processes that are going on at the moment relating to treaty and truth-telling? It's an interesting, broader reflection. So I was talking to you about this the other day. So, yeah, the 67 referendum was a big part of letting the federal government make laws for Aboriginal people because back then it was only up to the states. And so the federal government had a long history of going like, oh, yeah, we'd definitely be less racist than the states are. We, We don't have the constitutional power to do it. What a shame. And then they did get the constitutional power and they passed various racist pieces of legislation. There were three times that legislation was passed by the federal government where the Racial Discrimination Act had to be suspended because it was overtly racist legislation. That was enabled by the 67 referendum. Where it's like now I think a lot of people have such little faith in federal government that are actually a bit more interested in hearing what the states to say, which is a terribly depressing state of affairs because a lot of them are still pretty bloody racist too. But for me, and I'm a big believer in, in self-determination and so – if if those communities that are involved in those processes, they have free prior and informed consent and ability to sit at the negotiating table, all for it. 
like I said, I'm, I'm a very cynical individual when it comes to faith in the government, but I, I know mob aren't silly, and so if they want to go sit at the table, and man, good luck to them. I hope we hope they get what yeah whatever they can from that process. But I think a lot of these processes, it's so hard when you're living them, you know, and obviously it's very easy when you do have the benefit of hindsight to go back and go, yeah, no, that didn't work. So I, I don't blame Mob for having a go, and, and I hope we do look back on it. But for me, I guess I'm, I'm getting more interested when you talked about, like, the old Black Power movements. Like, I think a lot of my sort of frustration in more recent times, just, just talking as an individual, is I'm kind of just more interested in getting back to just doing stuff with Mob of ourselves for ourselves. Which is not to say, like, of course we need treaty, of course we need to push for those things, and of course you need to engage with government at some level to achieve that. I think I'm, I'm just, like I said, I'm getting a bit older and a bit more cynical and a bit more burnt out. So I think I'm just a bit, a bit more interested in the immediate future of just working with mob, seeing <laughs> what we can get done. Look, there was a little bit of talk throughout the referendum process about colonialism, but it seemed to be very base level <laughs> discussion. <laughs> Why do you think that? Just purely reducing things to that level is inadequate to explain the situation. Because we do say, yeah, Aboriginal disadvantage exists because colonisation. Either you already know and you didn't need it said, or you don't know and that doesn't do much to to help you. Yeah, and and there's a lot of, like, I I don't also believe we need to spend too much time, like, trying to convince Australia that it is racist. It is palpably obvious a lot of people do put like infinite amounts of of resources and hours into proving it. And a lot of people just don't care. And that goes back to you know, what I was talking before about like, I don't have a lot of time for people who just say whatever and don't care and don't necessarily believe what they say. And I think a lot of people who deny that colonization was a negative or that deny that there is racism in Australia or that Australia is racist, I think they know and just don't care. But there are some people who, who legit just by virtue of being raised within this country have been presented a very palatable worldview that says we're not racist, everything's cool. But it's like, man, you, you shouldn't spend more than five minutes having to convince them of that. If, if you can't get it pretty instantly, then I don't have a lot of time for you. But like I said, yeah, it's such a, a long boat for those people who, and, and just for young ones coming up, like you need to understand, you need to be able to draw the parallels, you need to be able to pull something out and to say, yeah, this exists because colonization is. Yeah, I, I, I used to teach at uni. I wouldn't be giving you top marks. That's your explanation. You've got you to you make an argument somewhere along the line. Could I ask you a guest question, Luke? Sure. This comes from Catherine Deves. Why has the phrase First Nations taken hold in Australia? Is there evidence of a Westphalian system of nations in Australia when Captain Cook showed up in 1788, she asked on Twitter the other day? Very ahistorical question from Catherine yeah, Deves. Yeah, I was going to say, it's just like, oh, get away. But I, I think there's a more interesting one, and it goes back, you know, a lot of the the linguistic framing. And so it's this interesting space where it's like there was that language of civilized and primitive when, when you go back, which is not that that far ago, and and still people use it quite happily in Australia and in, in other places. And that's a big part of the core justification for colonization, the superior civilization and the primitive peoples and all that bullshit. And so along with all of that that language, you have things where it's like, oh, white fellas get nations. We've got tribes. You get history. We've got prehistory. You get science. We get trial and error and, and superstition. You've got logic. We've got superstition. So there's all of these sort of dehumanizing, belittling language that points us to, to primitive. And then so when terms like First Nations pop up, a big part of it is saying like we, we had as much right 
to be a nation by whatever we're defining as a nation. You know, as you mob were, like, screw you. Why, why, why do you get nations and we get tribes? But then other mob pop up and go, well, do, do we want to be using the same terminologies they're using for themselves anyway? And so it, it's an interesting parallel. But yeah, associations that did it, it's popped up. Young fellows have sort of really embraced it more. It's, it's become quite normalized quite quickly. I, I think in part, social media helps language normalize quicker than it probably did yeah, when we were all younger. But I, I grew up on the tail end of Aborigines, moving to Aboriginal and the capital A for Aboriginal and then Aboriginal and Islander and then Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. Uh, and then Indigenous, and then Indigenous with a capital I. Um, and you know, I've written about that in the past where it's like the none of them are our own names for ourselves. You know what I mean? Like, And, and when you think about names for, for peoples, normally those names come from place. A name is derived from place, like Australians come from Australia. And for the first hundred years of invasion, we, we were Australians because white fellows who turned up, they didn't think of themselves as Australian. They were, at first, they were still English or whatever. And then they were more in their colony. So there was, you're a Victorian and you're a Queenslander and you're a New South Welshman. So it wasn't really until sort of that Federation era that white people started to call themselves Australians. And then we stopped being Australians. But at that whole time, we were always just Aboriginal. And so we didn't get a name derived from place. We got a classification. Like Aboriginal, Indigenous, Native, they're, they're the terms you use for flora and fauna and for us. And then as we started to fight for them, they took on political connotations and we started to get the capital letters for them. But it's like whatever term we're using, it's always going to be infinitely problematic. You're never going to have universal acceptance around it. And eventually, because words have social meaning as well as literal dictionary definitions, as long as we are broadly disrespected. Now, it's like we talk about Aborigines now and go, oh, well, it just sort of, it evokes a memory of a more racist colonial period. Well, it's like, is that, is that what young black fellows are going to say in 2050? Or it's like, oh, Aboriginal, Indigenous, that reminds me of the intervention. In First Nations, that reminds me of yeah, Australia voting no. Like, is that, so it's like, until we actually get that basic level of respect and dignity and humanity, I, I suspect there's a very real possibility that the terminology will keep needing to change. Look, the campaign unleashed uh, a lot of things it seemed to lead to an increase in public political participation by the extreme right and even neo-Nazis. Do you think that this the space that's been created through this conversation about the voice has allowed some to speak that perhaps we would prefer not to hear from? Do you see the issues that have been raised, the anti-black racism being used in future to propel some kind of more determined white supremacist or, or fascist movement in Australia? Oh, man, I think the racists are always at the gate. It was only bloody yesterday, man, where we had the rise of the alt-right and Australian media was fallen over themselves to platform Nazis. Yeah, so it's not, like, it's not like this has just created that. Yeah, th those white supremacist talking points are still you know, electable material in this country. So the extreme fringe, like that, that aggressive, the, when, when we tend to think of your more aggressive white supremacist sort of groups at the moment, you're talking about all these like, you know, steroid pumping, freaking muscle head idiots having their little fight clubs and carrying on and, you know, whatever, like versions of domestic terrorism and shit that, that emanates from that. But like I said, they're, they're the group who a few years ago were all on Triple J and all on ABC and all being invited on the drum and everywhere else. Like Australian media just couldn't have been quicker to platform Nazis. And, and I mean, I'm terrible with time, but, but seriously, like how long ago was that? Four or five years? It wasn't that long ago. 
Yeah, so, I, like, we, we, that's what, we're not talking like, I know I'm getting older, but we're not talking a million years ago here. So I, I don't think this has helped. But I think one thing that I'll, I'll say to, to anyone who's, who's listening is you know, a lot of people have this vision of anti-racism or, or progress, whatever you want to call it. And it's just like this constantly on the up and up. And you're like, oh, I can't believe it's 2023 and people are saying that or you know, whatever they're talking about. Like this, this shit doesn't just get better by virtue of time passing. It gets better when we make it better. And that no matter what victories we make, there are always people willing to fight against it, to undermine it, to water it down, to take it back. That's where I think it comes out of America where someone uh, wrote a paper a few years ago. Apologies, I can't remember the name, but they talk about the, the pendulum swing of race relations. Where, and I tend to think of it even more than a pendulum swing because it does gain that sort of momentum, but it's a tug of war. Like it's a constant daily tug of war for pulling Australia back into more palatable, more acceptable, more front and centre uh, overt white supremacy or pulling it towards a space of Indigenous rights and, and dignity. And so this thing of like, like our, our grandparents, well, they were racist and like, we're not great, but like our kids are, our kids are so much better. Like, look what they're learning in school. I didn't learn all of that. The, the problem of that worldview for me is if you think that racism just goes away with the passing of time, then what's your responsibility to creating an anti-racist world? Nothing. You can just wait for that last generation to die and then for our generation to take. Like, that's not how it works. That's not how it's ever worked. That's not how anything works. Like, there, there are always white supremacists there. Yes, they are emboldened right now, but they were already pretty bloody bold. And they're still going to be bold. Even if it was a yes, they would still be bold. The other thing I was thinking of was that was kind of related, but I didn't quite get a chance to ask was I did find, well, not entirely unexpected, but somewhat surprising that certain well-known individuals would mount a defense of colonialism. I just thought that was kind of not quite jumping the shark, but close to. And I wondered in a sensible society what the response to those kinds of just appalling claims would be, which have been made for many years, but to hear some particular individuals invoke them is kind of worrying. Yeah, it is, but they've done it before. Yeah. Like, and, and that's where I don't even know if you'll bother putting this to air because I'm going to go on a tangent because that's what I do. <laughs> but the other day, like, I, I was looking for, for a tweet from someone else and I found a tweet of mine uh, from eight years ago where I tweeted, constitutional recognition is dead, long-lived sovereignty. And it was two years before the Uluru Statement came out that I tweeted that. And a couple of people had found it and like, we were pushing it around a bit. And so people were replying to it like it was in real time. And I said, that, that, that was eight years ago. I'm actually talking about this. I was actually talking about recognize at the time. But a lot of people, I think, would have seen that and just gone like, is, is Luke a psychic? Like, how did he tweet this <laughs> like eight years ago, two years before the Uluru Statement was handed down? And it's like, because this is a very long story. And most people just turned up two minutes ago. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and so when pe people did, people rang me and it's like, oh, Luke, did, did you hear that she said, you know, colonization was a good thing? It's like, yeah, I did. Six months ago and two years ago and three years ago and yeah. five years ago. Like, she says it all the time. Yeah. It's just most people don't pay attention to this stuff. And so for me, I was like, yeah, no, that's, that's a thing. That's not a new thing. That's not a voice thing. And people are like, oh, look, what about all, all the, the, these new sort of racist lines that are coming up because of the voice campaign? It's like, no, there's no new lines. They're all the old lines. Yeah. They're just resurfacing because of the voice. Like they, they, they're put front row center. And that's it. When Albanese was like, oh, at least this put Aboriginal disadvantage front row and center. 
as I said, we've always been defined within the national discourse by disadvantage, and that has always evoked racism. So you putting that front and centre just put a big target on our on our backs. Like you should have been putting Indigenous rights front and centre. You should have been putting the dignity of Indigenous peoples front and centre. You should have been combating the racist arguments that were being heightened where there was no real myth-busting. The myth-busting, like, like we have to do that, that on-the-ground stuff. Like, so that idea that colonisation benefited Aboriginal people, that's, that's, that's just pure old-school white supremacist colonisation, white man's burden justification. There was an article, I think it was in, I don't even want to name the paper in case I'm wrong and, and they try to sue you or whatever, but you know, there was some little like IPA wannabe sort of fella who wrote up going like, yeah, yeah, she was dead right, like because we, we brought medicine and education. And it's like, bud, you brought the smallpox and then the smallpox vaccine wasn't created till like a decade after, but then you didn't give it to black fellas anyway. And they're like, we still have problem with getting adequate healthcare to Aboriginal people. So you, you like, it's such a ludicrous argument to sit there and go, we benefited because we brought education. It's like, well, we actually already had ways of educating our children, which you destroyed and dismantled, and then forced us into these systems where at first we weren't allowed in them for a very long time. And then when blackfellas were allowed in schools, you, we went there and you taught us that we were primitive. And even today, like the amount of racism and crap that, that Aboriginal kids have to deal with in schools or the inadequate resourcing to, to schools in remote communities. It's like it's such a, a farcical uh, argument to be making. But again, that just goes back to what I was saying, like Australia's ability to, to recognise itself, to understand its own history. It has no knowledge of the history of racism, of, of race theory. You, you can't talk about the stolen generation, particularly when we're talking about those periods in like the 1930s, and we failed to draw the parallel that that was very heavily eugenics driven with a clear outcome of genocide in mind. So in the 19, 1937, right, there was the Aborigines Welfare Conference where all the chief protectors came together and they said very openly, within 50 years, we want there to be no Aboriginal people anymore and this is how we're going to achieve it. That's what the Stolen Generations was. Whereas at the exact same time in Germany, they said, this is our plan to get rid of the people we don't want. We're going to do it a hell of a lot quicker. But it was the same eugenics-driven theory with the same outcome in mind. Whereas now we look back on it and go, oh, but it was the Stolen Generation. They were trying to help. And it's like, no, that was just genocide, but they just didn't want the brutality of the genocide that Germany embraced. Well, Luke, we'll have to leave it there. <laughs> if people want to find you online, you're on x.com at Luke L. Pearson, as oh. well as Indigenous X. Uh, I reckon Elon's done you dirty with the branding there. Uh, yeah, I've got to say, stole it off. I was like, if people are looking online, I'm like, for a good amount, I was like, don't, don't look for me. I'm good. <laughs> I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm not here doing anything. Write a letter. I'm around. Yeah, that's right. If you, if you see me in the street, don't feel obliged to say hello. It's fine. I'm good. But you can check out indigenousx.com.au and read the articles there. That's that's probably a better <laughs> a better plug. And indigenousx is on Twitter and and on all the socials. Indeed. Well, check it out, folks. Andy, that's our show. We'll be back next week. We will. See you later. Bye bye. Bye. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. 
Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter.